The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Let's open in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this evening. I'm so grateful uh, for the chance to be able to share some of the reflections that I've had really for months now on this topic of power or strength and uh, how needy we are of that, Lord, how much we need you to strengthen us, um, how much we are dependent on you at every moment and how you actually ordained and designed it that way, that we would not be in any sense independent from you, but that we would lean on you and rest on you and rely on you and be renewed uh, again and again as we come to the end of our strength or the end of our resources, uh, that we would find in you a, a, a limitless source of strength and power for ministry and for our lives. So I pray that we would have a clearer vision of that tonight. I pray that you would give me uncommon clarity and um, power and passion and an anointing of the Spirit so that this time would be maximally used for your glory. I thank you for these brothers and sisters that are here tonight to listen. And I ask, Lord, that you would help us to hear what you have to say through the Word of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me just uh, share with you a couple of things that have happened in my in, uh, just recent, recently to me as I've been thinking about this issue of power or strength. Um, I'm not so much using those words um, interchangeably, but they're very similar. Um, so power through prayer, or strength through prayer, these are some thoughts. So a few years ago, I began riding my bike. I had reached a certain point physically in my life where I had gained too much weight. I wasn't in physical shape, and I just wasn't getting any exercise. And I was finding that pastoral ministry wasn't helping uh, to keep you know, myself in shape. Uh, probably was helping to break me down a little bit physically, but I just needed to get some exercise. And so I took my bike out, and uh, Christy had exhorted me to try bike riding because running wasn't really working for me. It was uh, I was just getting hurt um, running. And so I started riding my bike, which I really hadn't done in a while. And when I was a kid, I rode bikes and all that, but I hadn't really done it as an adult for exercise or anything. So I took it out, and um, I went specifically after a road that is near our house in which there's a very steep hill, extremely steep hill. Uh, like a roller coaster, that kind of thing. And um, I had decided to ride for a certain distance and then, you know, those number, a number of minutes and then turn around and, and, and head back. So um, I rode and got to the top of that hill and it was just an awful lot of fun going down. It was really, I mean, I was flying. I felt great. Um, but then the timer, you know, I had to turn around. And uh, so I turned around and all of a sudden what had been my friend was now my bitter enemy. And so I was going up this hill, and uh, I just reached a certain point where I couldn't go any f further at all. Uh, and I had to get off the bike and walk, all right? Talk about being humbled by that. Now, I'm convinced as I look back, not only was I not in shape, but I didn't know how to ride a bike, and I probably was in a downhill gear still. Um, and uh, I don't think I could get up that hill now in a downhill gear. I don't, I don't know that Lance Armstrong could. Maybe he could, but it would take, I mean, you just don't have the leverage. And so I just, was, just didn't know what I was doing. But uh, over the period of time, I started to get in better shape, and I started to time myself on certain routes. And there's only a certain number of routes I can take from my house. And so, you know, after a while, you know, I started, you know, getting better and better at these routes and faster and faster and keeping records uh, of it. And, and uh, I got to the point where it got harder and harder to get my best time on these same routes because I was just riding them again and again. And uh, I think it was within the last six months I was really trying to get my best time ever on one of these routes. And, and I, I wasn't really even close. I was off by a minute and a half or whatever. And a, and a kind of a scary thought hit me. As I was going up this hill again for the 50th or 60th time and uh, having a really hard time this particular time, and I thought something hit me and it occurred to me, you know, I'm, I'm heading toward 50 years old. And the scary thought was that I've, I've hit my peak as a bike rider already. After such a short time, I will never go that fast again. It's all metaphorically, in a very bad way, downhill from here, all right? And uh, as I'm just trudging up this hill again, I was feeling incredibly weak. And I was thinking about aging and thinking about all these dark thoughts. And I was thinking about Psalm 90, which is printed for you here. It says, 
concerning us, the length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength. So I started thinking about the relationship between longevity and strength. And I was trying to think, what kind of strength did, did Moses have in mind there? You know, what kind of strength leads to longevity in life so that you go from 70 years to 80 if you have the strength? So I was thinking about Caleb. You remember Caleb, how, you know, he's an, a remarkable individual. And Caleb makes a statement in Joshua 14, you know, after the 40 years. Remember how he was one of the spies and he was one of the two, along with uh, Joshua, that believed the Lord to enter the promised land, but uh, the other 10 spies didn't. And so he had to bear the penalty of the entire nation and wait for 40 years to come into his inheritance, which he did. But there he was 40 years later, and this is what he says. So here I am today. 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now, there's a man for you, you know. I'm thinking, boy, wouldn't that be great? And have you ever met somebody like that, somebody in their 80s or even 90s, that they, they just have that attitude, that disposition toward life? So it occurs to me it isn't just a physical strength that we're talking about there, but there's a, a strength of character or of heart, an eagerness for life. You know, um, like Adoniram Judson, after all of that suffering, he said, I'm not, I'm not uh, weary of this world and I'm not weary of my work, but when the Lord calls me, I'll go like a little schoolboy on the final day of school. I'm, I'll be ready. I, I would love to be like that at the end of decades of hard ministry like he was, where I'm not weary. I, I'm, I'm ready to go. If the Lord wants me to be here another 10 or 20 years, I'm ready. But boy, if he takes me home, I'm ready to go for that too. Well, that's Philippians 1, for me to live as Christ and die as gain. If I stay here, it's good labor. If I go, I'm happy to leave. So I'm thinking I would like that kind of strength. So I just was meditating on that, uh, the strength that it would take to have that kind of sweet disposition toward life. And I think that that's a strength that only God can give. It's not just a simple matter of longevity. It's not just a matter of drawing breath. It's a matter of your attitude and your disposition toward life. And it takes immense strength because this is a sad world. It's a world of sin and suffering and death and all kinds of trouble. And I would like to be a very optimistic, sweet-spirited, energetic, fruitful man if I'm 85 or 90, if the Lord lets me live that long. Uh, another occasion, um, I, was, uh, I went on a, a trip uh, with... My son, Nathaniel, he graduated from high school, and we had a, a, a week together up in New England, and we did a lot of things, but one of the things we did was we hiked Mount Washington. And so, um, you know, we were going to go up uh, Tuckerman's Ravine, but it was closed because it was still melting snow and different things, even in June. Um, so we went up a different trail called Lion's Head, and the plan was to go up to the intermediate station and just, you know, we were going to camp there and uh, then make the ascent to the summit the next day. So we planned two days. We don't want to push and, and rush, et cetera. And I wasn't convinced that I was able to climb Mount Washington in a single day anyway, because uh, that would be a real strong pace. So uh, we, the problem was we got there in the morning and, uh, we, you know, mid-morning to late morning to get our reservations for the, you know, the uh, shelters where you stay. And, uh, and then we began our climb, and we were doing you know, great. I was, I'm in pretty good shape and he's 18, my goodness. Um, and so, I mean, he can eat anything. He can do anything. He's just fine. All right. So, um, we were just going, going up and, and we were making really good time. And so we, we ended up there at the shelter, like around two thirty or three in the afternoon, you know, with the sun going down whenever it goes down in late June, uh, I'm like, okay, so what do you want to do? We didn't bring a pack of cards. We had a Bible, but, you know, I like, you know, and so I, we were there for about an hour, hour and a half. You know, I'd put out our equipment and all that. And so he said, well, why don't we go for the summit today? And uh, I'm like, well, I mean, it's right on the edge of whether we could make it up and then back down again. You know, I don't want to get caught in the dark on the mountain and be like a lead story in the news or something, you know, search and rescue team or something like that. So, um, but we decided this was the best use of our time, but I said we'd have to keep a strong pace. And so we, uh, you know, we, we started up Lion's Head, and it's quite steep, much steeper than anything we'd done up to that point. And it was hard. You have to use your hands uh, to climb, and, and um, we had to go fast. And as we were going, uh, we were starting to pass people who had already been in the summit or coming down. No one was going up at that point. It was late, late afternoon by this point, and I was thinking, man, I'm glad I brought some flashlights and some rations or something. We might be spending the night up on the mountain. And, um, but as we're going, every person that came down, I asked them how long it was to the summit, and we got varying reports, you know, three hours, you know, 21 minutes, you know, things like that. And I'm saying, man, the truth's somewhere in the middle, I'm sure. So as we were going up... Um, 
I started to realize, you know, I was running out of strength, frankly. I mean, I'm, I'm in good physical condition, but my legs were, were sore and, and starting to get weak. And I was starting to think about a verse in Hebrews uh, 11, you know, that faith chapter, and, and by faith this and by faith that, and by faith Moses and by faith Abraham and all that. And toward the end, the author of Hebrews just starts to give this summary you know, what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, Samuel, David, and the prophets who through, through faith, by faith, you know, conquer kingdoms, administered justice, gain what was promised, you know, quench the fury of the flames, whose weakness was turned into strength. I just stopped at that phrase. By faith, weakness turned into strength. And I wondered if that included physical things like climbing a mountain. And I thought, why not? You know, why couldn't it? So I just, by faith, I said, God, give me now the strength I need to finish this hike today safely. And uh, I prayed that for a while just based on Hebrews 11. And then we just got into conversation and we just kept hiking and soon we were at the summit. We didn't spend long there because the, the thing was shut down. It was past 5 o'clock by then. So we just took a few photos and turned around and came back down. And we were there still with half an hour of daylight by the time we got down. And I remember thinking that faith actually can give you strength in your legs. But is there any biblical support for that? So all of these things are starting to swirl around in my mind. And tonight what I want to do is give you the fruit of some meditation I've done on this whole issue of power and strength, why we need it, God is the source of it, and specifically a little subset of that teaching tonight uh, is the focus of our time tonight, and that is strength through prayer in particular. The issue of strength and power is a big one in the Bible. It's not a small one. It's actually pretty big. And I think the more you meditate on what God is doing in salvation, the clearer it gets. One of the issues in salvation is that God wants us to know that we are completely dependent on him for everything. One of the issues with sin is that uh, it denies that fact, that basically we don't need God. We're just fine in our own strength. And so I want us to meditate today on power or strength through prayer. So the basic concept from which I'm starting is that we are weak and he is strong. So let's begin where we ought to begin with God and specifically with this attribute, the omnipotence of God. This is where we need to start. God is an, a limitless source of strength and power. The sun is really a picture of that. You know, the sun is, is undiminished day after day in its strength. It just burns and burns and burns and burns with, with heat and, and with light, and it's just limitless in its strength and power, and that's nothing compared to God. So we begin our study tonight with the sense of a meditation on the omnipotence of God. All right? There are many verses that we could use to talk about this, but in Isaiah 40 and verse 26... It says, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and his mighty strength, not one of them is missing. This is talking about the starry host. This is talking about the trillions and trillions of stars. And, and it's just, you know, just look at the starry host up there and realize who put them there. And the, the infinite power of God how great is his power, how great is his might. And Jeremiah 10, verse 6, uh, No one is like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is mighty in power. And then later in that same book, Jeremiah 32, 17, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Meditate then across redemptive history how God has displayed his power. What he did at the Red Sea crossing and before that with the ten plagues. All that God did and, you know, really from the very beginning creating the, creating the heavens and the earth by the word of his command. So simply by his power, by speaking, let there be light and there's light. By saying, you know, let the water be gathered unto one place and let dry ground appear and let there be birds and, and let them fly across the expanse of the sky. All of the things that God can do effortlessly just by speaking and they happen. That's the God that, uh, that we worship. Uh, he has a limitless source of power. And so we have to begin with that. And just by contrast, then, we have to look at ourselves. The second side of the equation here is the frailty or the weakness of man. We are weak. We are frail. We don't have any power. And we certainly don't have any power equal to what is assigned to us, what is our responsibility, what we need to do. We'll get to that in a moment. But the frailty of man is clearly testified to in Scripture as well. Psalm 144, 3 and 4, it says, O Lord, what is man that you care for him, the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a fleeting shadow. 
James 4.14 says, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. I mean, there are many verses that teach the frailty or the weakness of man. You think about what it says about Jesus. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. Um, I think it's pretty clear that those phrases, bruised reed, smoldering wick, are metaphors for human beings and their sinful weakness. In our weakness, we are like bruised reeds. A bruised reed is like a, you know, a piece of grass that's hanging by a slender green thread. All you have to do is just brush against it and it will be dismembered and fall off. It's that weak. You know, what's a smoldering wick? It's like when you blow out a, a candle and it's just all smoke and there's just a slight glow there and within a few seconds, it's out. And you think, what would it take to kindle it back into a flame? Well, we couldn't do it. If you just kind of just breathed on it with the slightest breath, it's going to go out. It's going to go out anyway. And so why does it say this, you know, this bruised reed and smoldering fl uh, flax or wick? I think it's the idea of this is the weakness of the human being. This is how weak we are in our sin and in our natural state anyway, we are weak. Uh, the beauty of that is it says a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. He's able actually to bind together the bruised reed and make it healthy again. He's able to take that smoldering wick and, and coax it into a flame. He can do that, that's Jesus, the gentleness. But all I just, I'm focusing on this and just saying we are frail, we are weak, we need his strength. Uh, we also need to keep in mind the strength of the opposition, that which opposes us. Our enemies are very powerful, very mighty. They're far stronger than we are. Look what it says in, in 2 Samuel 22, 17 through 19. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. So that's a human uh, opposition, but it does represent uh, also, we could speak of our demonic opposition, uh, Satan and his kingdom. Uh, our foes are too strong for us. Again, Psalm 142, 5 and 6 says, I cry to you, O Lord, I say, you are my refuge, my, for, uh, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. And then uh, definitely Ephesians 6.12 says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So our foes are mighty, they're strong, they're powerful. This is what's arrayed against us. I think if we could see into the spiritual realm, we would have a sense of the immense power of Satan, of his kingdom, of his dark forces that oppose us. We would quail and shrink back. So great is the opposition against us. And also, I think if we had a sense of the antipathy, the hatred of the natural man against God and the things of God and the people of God, we would have the same reaction. If you could just see how dark is the unregenerate human heart and how determined they are to oppose any good thing we would try to do. Um, and were it not for the strength and the power of God, you know, we would realize that we were way over our heads. It's impossible what we're trying to do. Now, the basic issue of salvation, the basic prayer of salvation is weakness crying out to strength, isn't it? I mean, really, if, if you talk about a sinner's prayer, what is the sinner saying thereby? I'm, I'm lost. I'm dead. Apart from you working in me, I will, not, I will not be saved. I will go to hell. I need you to come and help me. And so the, it uses the language of powerlessness. In Romans 5, 6, it says, at just the right time when we're still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. So there's that language of powerlessness. We were powerless to save ourselves. We could do nothing. And so Christ died for us as ungodly people. Also, the law of God was powerless to save us, uh, made powerless by our flesh. Nothing wrong with the law of God. It wasn't that he could have written a better law. It's just we just can't be saved by the law. That's the whole point. And so the law was made powerless by our flesh, by our sin nature. God had to do it by sending his son as uh, a sin offering, Romans 8.3. So therefore, only Christ can save us as we call to him for help. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. That is the call of weakness to strength. That's the call, frankly, of infinite weakness to infinite strength. That's what's happening. That's what happened when you got saved. You weren't calling out of strength. You weren't saying, Lord, I just need a life enhancer here. Okay? If you thought you needed a life enhancer, you didn't hear the gospel properly. The evangelist uh, was guilty of malpractice. He didn't tell you the truth. You don't need a life enhancer. You need a savior. And saviors come into weakness and save us. That's what happens. And so if you're a Christian, you know what I mean then by calling out of powerless 
likeness to the strength of God. That was the very beginning of your salvation when you did that. But it's not the end of your crying out from powerlessness to strength. We've been doing it really ever since. God strengthens his people. In Psalm 68, 34 and 35, it says, Proclaim the power of God, whose majesty is over Israel, whose power is in the skies. You are awesome, O God, in your sanctuary. The God of Israel gives power and strength to his people. Praise be to God. Now, I want to talk about that. I want to try to figure out what that even means. We go over these kinds of expressions and don't think much about them. What does he give? What does that mean? He gives power to his people or he gives strength to his people. I want to think about that with you. What's actually happening to you? What happens to your muscles? What happens to your heart, to your, to your soul when he strengthens you? What is he imparting to you? I want to think about that with you. Uh, what resource is going forth? How does it work? I want to th- but, but there, I'm just saying, whatever it is, and you say, I don't know. I just feel stronger afterwards, okay? <laughs> well, that's fine, and, that's, and if, that's, if we keep it at that level, that's fine. But at least we get this from Psalm 68. God is mighty, he's powerful, and he strengthens his people. Praise God for that. And then this is very, very famous, Isaiah 40, verse 27 through 31. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my cause is disregarded by my God? Have you ever felt that like that? That God doesn't know what you're going through? He doesn't know what your situation is? That God is somehow blocked, his vision is blocked from you, and he cannot see what you're going through? He's saying, why do you say that? Why could you say that, O Israel? Do you not know, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. So here is everything you need, really. You're starting with God and with his mighty power. See what it's saying? That God doesn't grow weary. You know, it says in Scripture that through Jesus, God sustains and upholds everything. He is upholding the universe. He's holding every atom of it together. But that process of doing that doesn't diminish his strength at all. He doesn't get weak or weary while doing it. It doesn't deplete him. He's still in his prime, okay, if you can use that language. You know, he's not any less strong than he was back then. And this is a beautiful thing. So God doesn't grow tired. He doesn't, get, he doesn't grow weary, etc. And then he imparts that to his people. He imparts that to those that grow weary and tired. Now, when it says even use, uh, he's clearly using that. He's speaking, uh, you know, from the greater to the less. You know, if a young man grows tired and weary, then everyone does. That's the logic that Isaiah is using here. If even young men grow tired and weary and youths stumble and fall, then everybody does. So in this way, there's a clear contrast between God and us. Our arms get weak. They get tired. Remember Moses interceding over the battle with the Amalekites and how, you know, after a while they had to hold him up because he just couldn't keep his arms up. And so uh, we get weak and weary. God is not like that. But if we hope in the Lord, we will renew our strength. And so that's what we're talking about here is by prayer, a renewing or a sustaining of strength so that you get renewed in your Christian life. That's what we're talking about. Now, let's talk for a moment about Paul's thorn in the flesh. And this is something that is, again, well worth meditating on. You know, remember the context here, 2 Corinthians 12. Paul, uh, in, in 2 Corinthians 11, is talking about his ministry as compared to that of the super apostles. The super apostles were boasters who came in and denigrated Paul, spoke, spoke, spoke him, talked him down, spoke little of what he had achieved, and were putting themselves forward. So Paul in 2 Corinthians is really comparing himself to them in a lot of ways. And he's not doing it because he really wants them to think well of him. Like he's having a self-esteem problem and it just hurts him that they think so poorly of him. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the fact that there's a link in their minds between Paul and the gospel he preached. And if they talk Paul down and they think Paul down, they're going to do the same with the gospel. And he wants them to understand the gospel that he preached. There's just such a link there between Paul and the gospel. And so that's why he defends his ministry. But it's so interesting how he does it. You know, he's talking, he's talking in 2 Corinthians 11 about all of his sufferings and his beatings and his shipwrecks and all of this, this misery that he's been through and that they hadn't been through. 
What is he doing? Well, he's talking about his weaknesses, about where he was frail and beaten down and, re and left for dead and all of that. And why does he do that? Well, he's going to get to that in a minute, but he's saying his strength is made perfect in weakness. That's where he's, he's, he's that's the display. You want to see the power of God in my life? It's that I'm just an ordinary man and my letters, though powerful, my presence is not powerful at all. My speaking isn't that great. And yet look what happened. There was a church in my wake. I left and you were there and you weren't Christians before I came and now you are. You're my letters of recommendation written not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts, transformed lives. That's what it's all about. So he's talking about that, but then he goes on and he says, I'm going to go on to visions, all right? Let's talk about visions. I know a man in Christ, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't really know, but God knows. You know, he was caught up to paradise. He was caught up to the third heaven. He heard inexpressible things, things that man's not permitted to talk about. You know, I'll boast about a man like that, this friend of mine, this person that I'm talking about. But I'm not going to boast about myself except about my weaknesses. But then he goes on from there to say, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. So clearly, Paul there, the cat's out of the bag. He's talking about himself. All right, no doubt about it. But he's saying, I want you to know there was a price tag for those, that vision that God gave me of heaven. He caught me up to paradise and he showed me some things. Gave me a glimpse of the glory of heaven and what it's going to be like set me a longing for it. And so when he says in Philippians, I desire to depart and be with Christ, I mean, he knows what he's talking about. I want to be there. But I'm still here, still ministering, etc. But Paul had a thorn in the flesh. God sent him a thorn in the flesh. He said, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. I mean, look at that language. Now, people have guessed at what it is. I'm not even going to guess. But it was just something that made his earthly life miserable. And its purpose was to keep him humble, that there would be an ongoing ministry of humility, while he at the same time, through his memories perhaps, had an ongoing ministry of glory. So he's got this ongoing sense of glory and something that God had specifically done for him, that glory was in his own future. But meanwhile, to keep him from becoming conceited, he has this ongoing thorn in the flesh. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away. That's prayer, right? He's asking God, please, O Lord, take this thorn out of my flesh. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So to me, this is a key concept in our study here, all right? God is greatly glorified when his weak children come to him with their weakness and say, be strong in this situation. Show your might and your power in this church. Show your power in this aspect of my life, in this struggle I'm having with sin. Show your power in this relationship. I can't do it. It's too hard for me. It's too strong. I'm too weak. First of all, isn't it true? I mean, you're not, it's not like you're exaggerating. It's not like it's like I'm only kind of too weak. I mean, the fact is you really are too weak for it and your foes really are too strong for you and you really are in over your head and it's way too much for you and too much is expected and all this sort of stuff. You must be perfect. Your Heavenly Father is perfect. We're supposed to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and all of this and it's just too much. And you bring that weakness. God is greatly glorified by that. As a matter of fact, he's so glorified by it, he wants it from you all the time. I mean, not just once a day. He actually wants you consistently to be weak in his presence, like all the time bringing your weakness again and again and again. So he says, my grace is sufficient for you. It's enough. What I'm planning on giving you, Paul, is enough to maintain your life and your ministry even with the thorn in the flesh. So I'm, gonna, I'm not taking the thorn away, but I'm going to give you grace to sustain you in the midst of that. I'm going to give you an ongoing effusion of my power and you're going to have a sense of your own weakness while I just keep, keep giving you that, that, uh, that grace that you need to keep going. And it's interesting that the whole thing's couched to keep Paul humble, right? One of his weaknesses is that he's a sinner who thinks too much of himself and might be tempted to float away from the brothers and sisters in Christ. You know? I mean, let's talk about these super apostles. They haven't been caught up to the third heaven like me, okay? 
They haven't, they haven't seen paradise like I have. I can tell you that right now. Let's go on to visions and revelations. I only bring it up to just say they haven't seen it, okay? And so, but he uses this strange language to talk about it because he is at the same time suffering because of that vision. It kept him humble. He doesn't end up thinking, boy, ain't, ain't I great? You know, isn't it incredible that I got chosen? He's not thinking that at all. The thorn in the flesh keeps him rooted to the earth and to the brothers and sisters in Christ. He's not saying that at all. He's saying, isn't God great? And isn't heaven great? And isn't it going to be wonderful to be there? And we're all heading there. There's a whole different thing. And Paul will acknowledge in his flesh he needed that help because he's weak in his flesh to think too much of himself. And so, Paul says, I'm going to boast all the more gladly about my weakness uh, so that Christ's power may rest on me. So you're, you're talking about prayer, and you say, okay, what is the power in prayer? Well, could it be that you know, God is doing the same kind of thing in your life, that there might be some terrible trial that you're going through or some chronic situation. It could be a medical issue. It could be a relational issue. It could be a struggle with sin. It could be anything in which you really feel weak. And, you know, you look at that and you say, you know, my life would just be so much better if he would just take it away and fix it. And it, and it could be that the lesson from Second Corinthians 12 is I'm not going to take it away but I'm going to give you grace in the midst of your weakness. What I want you to do is take it to me again and again and again and confess your weakness and let me give you a fresh effusion of strength and power to deal with it. I actually think that's what he usually does. What he usually does. And so prayer is just weakness begging for strength. Psalm 22 and verse 19, But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. All right, so that's just to set the table. Let's look at Christ, all right? Let's first talk about power. Uh, there's, there's a lot of things that we're needing to study here, and we're not going to get through it all, but um, in order to understand strength or power, we have to look first at Christ, all right? Christ is the power of God, all right? He is our power. And so there's a display of power in Christ, but there's also a display of weakness. We're going to get to both of those things. But let's first see how Christ... Uh, displayed the power of God. First of all, just in his own life, in his ministry, he clearly relied on the Spirit of God. He went out in the power of the Spirit of God to do that. And you could say, well, why is that significant? Because that's what you're going to need to do your ministry. And so Jesus does his ministry in a way that's a pattern for us. Like in, um, in Luke chapter 4, when he goes into the desert, he fights as we can fight. He doesn't really fight as the Son of God. Uh, he actually avoids that. That's the first temptation. If you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And he just doesn't do that. He doesn't do anything special. He does what we can do. He quotes scripture to stand firm in the day of testing. He, he is the son of man there in the desert. Okay. So basically, I'm just saying that's an example of how in every area of his ministry, his whole ministry was done in the power of the Spirit of God. And so must ours be. He's, an, he's a pattern, an example of wielding the power of God, how it's, how it's to be done. I'm not saying that we're exactly like Jesus. We're not. He had a power in that he was the second person of the Trinity. He, he was God in the flesh that we don't have. And if you don't think that's true, then go ahead and speak to the winds and the waves and see if they obey you, okay? If you need that test, go ahead and try it. Say, you know, who knows, maybe I'm as powerful as Jesus. If you have the boldness to try, go ahead and do it. But I would advise you do it in front of witnesses, okay? I want you all to watch me now as I speak to the winds and the waves. It will be the last time you do it, I predict. At any rate, Jesus displays the power of God. Luke 4.14, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. And so Peter gives a summary of Jesus' ministry and shows how much Jesus relied on the Spirit of God to do everything. In Acts 10:37 and 38, Peter said to Cornelius, You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Okay, there's a sense there that Jesus got all of his power from God the Father through, through God the Holy Spirit. There wasn't an independent power of Jesus. If you go to him and say, well, you are a member of the Trinity, you are God, you're one of the persons of the Trinity, do you have an independent power? I don't think that would make any sense. The answer would be, of course not. That's what the unity in Trinity means. 
And so he goes forth in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the same power that we would be seeking in our life and our ministry. Jesus gives him as an example of it. And so he does signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit. It says the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. You know, it's kind of like that. the way that Luke writes that. It's like, well, if the power of the Lord hadn't been present, he wouldn't have been able to heal the sick. And I don't want to break our brains on this kind of thing. I'm just saying that he did nothing apart from the Father. The Father's power was there so that he would be able to heal the sick. And the same thing happens even more poignantly with that woman who's subject to bleeding for 12 years. You remember how she pushes her way through the crowd and say, says to herself, if I only touch his garment, I'll be healed. And it was just so hard to get at Jesus. Um, but she was determined to be there. She had spent everything she had on trying to get well, and she wasn't any better, but was only getting worse. And so I'm sure she heard the reports about Jesus and just thought, all I have to do is touch the hem of his garment. It's a very unusual healing um, because Jesus stops in the midst of this crushing crowd and, and just says, who touched me? So, you remember that? Isn't that amazing? Who touched me? And that's one of those moments where the disciples think he's been touched, but in a different kind of way. It's like, wait a minute. I mean, everybody's touching you, Jesus. Are you all right? I mean, I think they think that he is a bit foolish at that moment, but Jesus is never foolish. And how arrogant are we to think that kind of thing? But you just have to wonder what the disciples were thinking when they said, but everyone's touching you, Lord. No, 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 you don't understand what I mean. If, if God ever appears foolish, then you need to think again, okay? Because the problem is you don't understand what he's doing or saying. When he said, who touched me, he doesn't mean who pressed in on my shoulders and all that. He meant something else. He said, no, no, somebody touched me because power has gone from me. All right, so that's the power of the healing. God the Father using God the Son to heal this woman marvelously. I think it's not his usual way because Jesus wants a personal encounter with her. He wants a personal encounter with everyone he heals. He could have healed the world with a word. The world be healed, and it's healed. I mean, that's, that's, there's nothing difficult for him to do that. It just wasn't his way. He liked to touch people, interact with them. That's another message for another time, but it's a power to do signs and wonders. There's also power of speech. The people of Mark 127 were all so amazed that they asked each other, who is this, a new teaching, and with authority. He even gives spirits, or orders, sorry, to evil spirits, and they obey him. So Jesus spoke like no man ever spoke. His words had power. Uh, they were astonishing. There was just a power to Jesus. I guess if I, just looking at the life of Jesus, you think, what an incredibly short time he ministered actively. I mean, the older I get, the, the shorter three years seems to me. I mean, that's an incredibly short time. And you think to yourself, how could you put together a ministry that would change the course of history in three years? What would you do? Would you be able to figure it out? There's no way we could figure it out. And Jesus did these healings, he did these teachings, he made his enemies, they arrested him, they murdered him on the cross, and he rose from the dead on the third day and ascended to heaven. And in that little short amount of time, he saves the world. That's the power of Jesus, that's the power of God. And that's the power I want to tap into in my life. I want, I want to find that power source, I want to be part of that, I want to be in the power of the Spirit so that my life isn't wasted, and so that I do things that are of eternal consequence. And so Jesus has the ability to give his power to the apostles. That's kind of important for us, isn't it? To know that the power of Jesus is available for us. He gives it to the apostles so that they would be able to heal and raise the dead and preach the gospel, uh, heal the sick, etc., Luke 9, 1 and 2. When they come back in Luke 10, 17 through 19, they return with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority. Another word translation of that is power. Uh, I've given you authority or power to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. So he has the ability to give power to his disciples, to his apostles, for the spreading of the gospel, for the advance of the kingdom. That's, by the way, why I think he begins the Great Commission with all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Another translation, again, same thing. All power in heaven and earth has been given to me. All right? Power for the spread of the kingdom, therefore, Luke 24:49. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So there we see just power in Jesus' life and ministry. By far, we could have done a lot more. I just want to give you a sense of it. I don't want you to think that the power and strength we're praying for is anything different than what Jesus had. It's the same power. 
So I just stuck this in here. I actually was a late addition to this outline because I didn't want, I wanted to teach you that it's the same power that was at work in Jesus, not an independent or different power. It's the same thing. Now, meanwhile, Jesus also gives us a great illustration of, of weakness, weakness in prayer and weakness before the Father so that basically the Father has to do something or nothing will come of it. And that's uh, the, the beauty of that, I think, is uh, we see in Gethsemane and at the cross. All right. Uh, what did Christ request in Gethsemane? Remember in Luke 22:42, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. That was his request. Did he get what he asked for? Well, no, he didn't. He didn't get the cup removed. Well, what did he get? Well, his weakness is pictured in Luke 22:44. Being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. So that's a picture of weakness, a supplication. He's on the ground, blood's coming from him. It's not a picture of strength. If you came on a man in that condition, you'd think he needs medical treatment. He needs something. He's not, it's not a picture of strength at all. And so what does God do? Well, look what it says in Luke 22:43. It says, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. So what happened there? It's a mystery to me, but the angel imparted something to Jesus in some way. For what? Well, so that he could get up off the ground and go die. He wasn't, it wasn't designed for him to die of a heart attack there in Gethsemane. He had to get up and he had to go and die on the cross. And if you want the evidence of the strength that God the Father gave him for that, just look at how he carries himself from that point forward. I mean, it's just amazing. Look at the picture of Jesus commanding in John 18, you know, who, who they came to arrest and they came for him, then let these go. He's in charge. I mean, Jesus is in charge of his own arrest and trial and crucifixion. He's just totally in charge. You really don't see weakness from that point forward except in the death itself, a picture of weakness. Get to that in a moment. But the angel came and strengthened him. What did he impart to him? Strength. Ability to get up off the ground and go and do what was needed. And you could say, this is a mystery to me. I just don't understand this. Why would the second person in the Trinity need an angel to come help him? <laughs> I don't know. I can't explain it. But he did. That's what it says happened. An angel came and strengthened him. It happened also after his fasting in the desert. The second great picture of this, I think, is on the cross. And the, the greatest display of Jesus' weakness is his own death. It says in 2 Corinthians 13:4, for to be sure he was crucified in weakness. Isn't that true? <laughs> Isn't Jesus dead on the cross a picture of weakness? It certainly is a picture of weakness. You know, like Michael Card said in El Shaddai, that, um, his most powerful, God's most powerful work, awesome work was done through the frailty of his son. I mean, is Jesus frail? He's absolutely frail. He was crucified in weakness. So it's a display of weakness when Jesus dies on the cross. Well, what did Jesus pray for? Well, in Luke 22:46, he prayed. He calls out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What is he praying for there? He's basically, I think that's incredibly significant what he's saying there. I'm going to die. I give you everything after that. I mean, what else could he say? He is as weak as it gets. He's dead. What is he saying? Father, do something with this. I hand all of this to you. Do something with this. Well, he's been doing something with it ever since. He raised his son from the dead. He was declared, it says in Romans 1, verse 4, with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. He, he seated Jesus at, at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. He gave him all this power and authority to rule over human history for his own glory. He's making his enemies a footstool for his feet. God is powerfully at work. It's an answer to prayer. Don't you see it? Father, into your hands I commit everything I did. Make something of this. Unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself a single seed. But if it dies, look what comes from it. But only if the power of God's at work. So Jesus gives us a picture not only of power, but also of weakness, supplicating to God for something. All right, that's a pattern. All right, well, let's look at some case studies of prayer. Weakness turned into strength through prayer. And there are many of these, and I think it's going to give you a sense. Basically, if you want to know what I did, I thought, how are the different ways, what are the different ways we can be weak? So how many different ways can we be weak? Physically. physically. Can we be physically weak? Yes. Yeah, so I started to think, are there examples of somebody who needed physical strength? And it was imparted. And we've already seen it in Jesus with the angel, but there are others. All right. What are some other ways we can be weak? Mentally weak, okay? 
discouragement, emotionally weak. We can be emotionally weak. Frankly, this isn't a thorough list. I'm going to keep working on this because I think about what it says in Ezekiel, how weak-willed you are, etc. We can be weak in, in will. Is there an example of us praying so that our will would be strengthened? It's some, something like that. I, I don't know. That, that was my mode of, of uh, operation here. How can we be weak? Is there an example of somebody who brought that weakness to God in prayer? That's what I'm looking for. So let's uh, take physical weakness, turn to the strength. How about Samson? Remember how he takes the, the jawbone of the donkey and he kills a thousand Philistines with it? Wouldn't that have been something to watch? What a bloodbath. I always wondered about that, guys that kill a thousand with a, with a spear, you know, or something like that. I'm thinking, why don't they all rush on him at once? Do they all kind of wait their turn like they're waiting in line? You know, it was a thing of honor. I, I figured, you know, yeah, the first six guys get killed, but whoever's in the back probably would get the job done. But at any rate, maybe God put a kind of a brain lock or something on the Philistines as they wait to take their turn. Um, let me ask you a question, okay, about, about Samson. Do you think that Samson's biceps were larger than the average bicep? What do you think, Tim? You're a guy that, I mean, have any of you ever shaken his hand? Will you shake my hand? Gently now. Thank you. That was good. I appreciate that. Let me ask you, Tim. Do you think that Samson's biceps were larger than the average bicep? <laughs> that makes two of us on the face of the earth. I, I think you and I are the only ones that ever asked that question. Well, let's think about what Samson did, okay? Do you remember the account where he rips the city gates out pillar and post and throws them over a mountain? Okay, what size bicep do you need to do that? Huh? I don't... Samson size. Samson size. There you go. I'm thinking that wouldn't it be something if Samson were built, let's be honest, like me? <laughs> I don't want any of you saying anything. Now, I can say this kind of stuff about myself, but I'm not giving you permission to do it. All right? But at any rate, I mean, if you just look like an average guy, that seems more like what God would do. Because let's, let's face it, there is no bicep big enough to rip city gates out and throw them, throw them. I mean, let's face it, the weakness of the walls in the gates. So most of the engineering goes in the gates so that they don't get through. I mean, you don't just pick those things up and throw them up over a mountain, okay? And the Bible always tells us how he did it. What does it say? The spirit of the Lord came upon Samson in power. Yes? Yeah, probably so. It's speculation either way. He may have been built. He may not have been. The Bible doesn't say. It just said he did great acts of physical strength. All right, but after he kills a thousand Philistines, he feels like he's in danger of dying. So here at that moment, he's a picture of weakness, not of strength. And so this is what he says. Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, You have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi, and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned, and he revived. So the string, spring was called En-Hakore, and it's still there in Lehi. That means uh, spring of the caller, or the one who calls. And so it really is, uh, it refers to his prayer. He prays to God and God opens up a spring. And what was the result of that spring? Strength. So in this case, the strength comes through an intermediate step of the water, right? You know, in other cases, there's an immediate impartation of strength. In this case, it came through water. Okay, but he was strengthened as a result of prayer. Uh, even more, though, I think we'll see it in his death. You remember how they put out his eyes, but then his hair started growing back. And so they're having a big festival, festival to their pagan god. I think it was Dagon. And there's this big uh, temple, you remember, and they're all having a big celebration. There's thousands of Philistines there. And he asks his guide if he would put him right near the pillars that are supporting the whole structure. Would you mind doing that? I just think there are just some dumb people in the Bible. And I think he was probably one of the dumber people in the Bible. Would you mind just so I can feel the pillars that support the entire structure? If I could just put me there, you know. But at any rate, he goes there and he's, he's touching those pillars. And uh, it's quite remarkable. 
uh, this prayer. He says, O sovereign Lord, remember me, O God. Please strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple and the rulers and all the people in it. And then thus he killed more when he died than when he lived. Now, again, I don't really know the answer to this question, but what did God do for Samson there? You know, when you're thinking about strength, what is it? When you think about power, it's hard for me to get away from my engineering and physics training. It's just the ability to produce an effect or something like that. But something came through Samson's arms and moved those pillars. It just physically moved until the whole thing came down. And so physical strength can come as a result of prayer. What does that mean for you as a Christian? Well, there are times you're going to need to pray a prayer like that. God, you're calling on me to do something. And I just, I feel like I'm at the end of what I can do. I have no more strength. I'm just, I feel weak. I can't do it. Give me strength, please. And he will. He can give you a surge of energy. He can give you power to get up and go do uh, what he wants you to do. Uh, Daniel. Uh, it showed that he did have power himself for the people to realize how much power they did have. God used, say again, to show how much power God had? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's, absolutely. Um, there's another very clear example of this with Daniel in Daniel chapter 10. I'll just read this and comment on it briefly. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of the finest gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. By the way, that's why this, is, this account is in this study. What does he say? I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. This is a picture of abject weakness. Furthermore, I just, I think that he was an old man by this point. He's probably in his 80s. And so, you know, there he is. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up for I've now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have now come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I've come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns of time yet to come. Now, here's the interesting part. I mean, it's all interesting. But in verse 15, while he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face toward the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips and I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I am helpless. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone and I, am, and I can hardly breathe. So he's got physical problems here. He's, he can't catch his breath. He is a picture of weakness. Verse 18, again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. That's just like what the angel did for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. What did he do? I don't have any idea. All I know is that after he touched him, look what happens. He said, do not be afraid, O man, highly esteemed. He said, peace, be strong now, be strong. And when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. Wow. I mean, that's amazing. God has the power to impart that kind of strength to somebody so that you stand up on your feet and you're ready to go again. It's quite astonishing. Think about the same thing happens in Elijah, in Elijah's life where he runs and beats the horses. Remember that? And then he's ready to die and he's like laying down in the broom tree and doesn't want to go another step. And so God gives him a biscuit and a jar of water. And then he gives him another one X number of hours later. And in the strength of that, he goes 40 days running to some other mountain. I'm thinking, what's going on with that? That's an amazing biscuit. I mean, that's, heaven, that's a heavenly biscuit because, I mean, what a power source. But, I mean, I think you really have the sense that God can impart power and strength to you. Um, again, you get the same thing with Nehemiah. Remember how they're trying to turn a pile of rubble into a fortress, a protection for uh, Jerusalem. And uh, it's, 
it's a, a daunting task. And it says in Nehemiah 4.10, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is, laborers is giving out and there's so much rubble, we cannot build the, rebuild the wall. Uh, Nehemiah 6.9, it says, they're all trying to frighten us thinking that their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed, but I prayed now strengthen my hands. Now, you know what ends up happening in Nehemiah. The wall gets built in a remarkably short time. As a matter of fact, it's such a short time that there is no doubt to anyone, friend or foe, that God alone could have done this. But a key step was this. He prayed, strengthen my hands. And all of a sudden, not just him, I think, but all of the laborers had physical strength. What are they doing? Seriously, what are they doing to rebuild the wall? What's involved? They're picking up stones. Right, and then when they put that stone on top of the other stone, what do they do next? They go back and get another stone. I mean, how much of that do you think you could do? Some of them were doing that. Yeah, it was a grueling, physically draining kind of thing. You know what's so amazing to me is the more you meditate on this whole theme, the more you realize that God can do far more in us and through us than we can imagine. I just don't think we ask for much. I think we say, I, I just can't do anymore. I'm just exhausted, just tired. Well, is that the end of the story? Others have been more exhausted than you. Look at these, okay? Look at these accounts. Daniel was wiped out. He's on the ground. Jesus is in Gethsemane, dri dripping blood. There's, uh, you know, Nehemiah and Samson. God gives physical, physical strength. Okay, let's uh, look at one more uh, or, or a couple. We've got two or three more minutes. Um, but emotional weakness turned to strength. There's other ways we can be weak, and one of them is emotionally, right? You remember this account, how um, David led a raid, and as he did, he le they left behind their wives and their children. You remember that? And while they were gone, um, I forget who it was, maybe the Amalekites or somebody comes in and, and takes them, uh, away, kidnaps them and steals them away. And uh, so when they come, they think they're all dead or whatever. And it's really a very, very tough time for uh, David. Uh, in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, it says, uh, David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Uh, each one was bitter uh, because of his sons and daughters. And so basically, not only has David perhaps lost his family, but they're all blaming him and they want to kill him. But look what it says next. David found strength in the Lord his God. So this is an emotionally low point. I'm not denying that there's probably a physical side to this where David was probably exhausted after having led this raid. Now he comes back and grief can be extremely exhausting physically. So I'll, I'll mix that in here. But I also think there's an emotional strength. And frankly, in the first category, there's a lot of emotional strength too as well. The morale of, the, of Nehemiah's men, they've got to be emotionally strong to think they can even do it. You ever hit that point in the job where you just don't think it's ever going to get done and you just want to give up? It's just too big. It's just so discouraging. So there's an emotional strength coupled with the physical strength. And so God has the power to do that. Uh, so also uh, spiritual weakness can be turned into strength. Our weak faith can be made stronger. You remember this man who said to Jesus, Lord, if you can do anything, help my son. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. So what is he praying for there? What's he praying for? What's he asking for? Matthew, what's he asking for? I, I do believe, help my unbelief. What does he want? What kind of strength? Stronger what? Well, yeah, stronger faith. He wants his faith strengthened. Can we pray that? Can we go to Jesus and say, Lord, I do believe, but I think my faith is too weak. Strengthen my faith. Well, absolutely, yes. And then there's Luke 22. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. What does it mean when somebody's faith fails? It means it proves too weak for the test. I've prayed to God the Father that your faith will be strong. Strengthen uh, his faith. And then it says, and when you have turned back, then do what? What does it say right there in Luke 22? Strengthen your brothers. So there's a flow of strength from Peter to the others because of his renewed strength and faith. Okay? And uh, spiritual weakness could also be a weak apprehension of Christ's love made stronger. This is a very uh, important passage on strength in prayer. Ephesians 3, 16 through 21, it says, I pray that out of his glorious might, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp 
how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And that you may know that love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all you ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forever. Amen. What is he saying there? He's talking about power and strength and all that. I hated to put even a title on this, you know, weak apprehension of Christ's love for us. Well, there's all kinds of weakness in this, suddenly made strong by an influx of the omnipotence of God. Isn't that an awesome prayer? You ought to pray this for somebody. Seriously, you ought to pray this for somebody tonight. Just get Ephesians 3, 16 through 21 and choose somebody that you think needs this and pray this for them. Say, God, strengthen so-and-so with power through the Spirit in their inner man so that Christ can dwell in their hearts through faith. That's a very powerful thing to pray for. But again, the backdrop or the context of such a, a prayer is weakness, great weakness. Okay. So let's just stop here and uh, we'll pick it up in two weeks. Um, we'll look at some more examples and then talk uh, some more about how to gain power. Uh, if I could, at the end of this lesson, uh, you know, page 12 and 13, et cetera, I talk about a topic of unction, uh, unction in, in preaching. And uh, I'm preaching this Sunday on the topic of, on the first seven verses of the book of Proverbs and really focusing especially on Proverbs 1, 7 which says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. My desire is that God would grant me an unusual unction or anointing in, in preaching so that we would understand what the fear of the Lord is, what role it should play in the Christian life, and that we should understand it properly in the light of the cross, in the light of being adopted sons and daughters of the living God, but that we'd have a pro an appropriate, healthy fear of God as a result of that sermon. That's something I cannot do. I'm convinced that my sermon will be inadequate unless God gives me an anointing through the Holy Spirit. So, Tim, would you pray for that and close us in prayer tonight? Thank you. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.